This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast. It's draft week. We have the expansion draft this week, but we also have that other little draft known as the entry draft. We did the expansion draft preview podcast last week. This week, it's the entry draft preview podcast. And I happen to have with me the draft guru of the hockey news, Mr. Prospect Boy, Ryan Kennedy. And Ryan, we have a lot to talk about on this episode. So I'm just going to kind of dive into it as I like to do. We're going to start it pretty simple, okay, my friend? We're just going to go through the top five teams, and let's do a mini mock. Let's mock up the top five. Tell me who you think each team's going to pick and why. So let's start with pick number one, and that is, of course, belonging to the Buffalo Sabres. Who do you have? I have Owen Power, the towering defenseman from the University of Michigan. He's got the size. He's got great skating. He's got great two-way ability. Played for Canada at the World Championship. Playing against men looked awesome. They won gold. And, you know, you look at the Sabres. This is a team that they, they don't need a home run, but they definitely need at least a double. And uh, Owen Power can be that guy where I, I feel he's like a safe number one pick. You know you're going to get years of service out of him. He's got a good head on his shoulders. He's probably going back to the University of Michigan for one more season. I think that's a great move because the Wolverines are going to be a top team. They can shoot for a national title, and he can get just a little more development time while the Sabres themselves continue to rebuild, and then they can support him better when he actually gets there to NHL camp. I like it. So we're starting off the mini-mock with a match. I, of course, also have Owen Power going to the Sabres for very similar reasons, and I know he does play the left side like Rasmus Dahlin, but I think you just go best available here, and you know, that blue line is going to lose some depth soon. You have Jake McCabe, who's UFA right now. You have Rasmus Vistalainen, who's probably going to get traded at some point this season. Uh, so I think you need that new pillar. It's going to take a lot of pressure off Rasmus Dahlin. And like you said, Ryan, I don't think we're going to see necessarily own power going right to the NHL, but maybe with the Sabres, that's not what they're about right now. They're about just kind of finding their footing and maybe they'll be in a better place with coach Don Granado kind of getting that momentum with them late in the season by the time Owen Power comes the next season. So either way, I think it's a nice pick for Buffalo. Give me your pick number two, the Seattle Kraken. Well, this will be really fun because it's the Kraken's first ever draft selection. And obviously they need everything in their pipeline because the only player they have right now is free agent Luke Henman. I can see this going one of two distinct ways. Simon Edmondson, the defenseman from Frolunda in the SHL, or Matty Beneers, the center from the University of Michigan. Both players could be future cornerstones for Seattle, and it's just a matter of if GM Ron Francis and his scouting staff want a defenseman or they want a center. In Edmondson, you get a player very similar to power, great size, great skating, can do a little bit of everything. And in Matty Beneers, you get sort of a Jonathan Taves-esque two-way center who is awesome in his own end he can take those key defensive face-offs but he's also great around the opponent's net always seems to find a way to create offense so i think they could go either way and be very happy okay well i'll give us a one and a half matches there because i do have maddie veneers going to seattle as well Ron Francis will create the team like God in the book of Genesis in his own image. He will start by drafting a center who has good smarts and two-way ability, just like the Selkie Trophy winner, Ron Francis. So he's going to see himself in that pick. And I think that's going to be, again, in a draft 
that, and we're going to get into this later, I think is one of the scariest in a long time in terms of scouting. You want to go with safe picks on the board. And I think that Matty Peniers is one of those. Who do you have for the Anaheim Ducks at number three? Well, I'm going to go with William Eklund, uh, another Swede this time from Jurgerden in the SHL. And, you know, there's a couple of very high-end wingers that could go in this spot, but I feel historically Anaheim has, has really liked their Swedes, and that's why I'm giving this to Eklund. He's a very responsible player. You know, he got some serious minutes in the SHL uh, in crucial times, which you just don't see for a teenager. And obviously he's got a lot of high-end skill, put up a great amount of points, had nice chemistry with Alex Holtz, the New Jersey Devils first rounder who played on the same line as him. And Eklund actually had more points than the Holtz this year. So that tells you just what kind of talent you're dealing with. And Anaheim already has Trevor Zegers at center, and they have Jamie Drysdale as their future number one defenseman. So I feel like going with a high-end, versatile winger in Eklund would suit them nicely. All righty. Uh, I'm on a similar path to you, but going with a different guy. But I am thinking as well that you have, you know, you have your, J- your Jamie Drysdale and you have, of course, Trevor Zegers, who looked, I think, pretty good as the season progressed in his 24-game sample. But I'm going with that trigger man for Zegers. Dylan Gunther is my guy for the Anaheim Ducks for the goal-scoring ability. And I think as well, especially, and I'm, I'm going winger as well, because if you look at the Ducks' decision to not expose Sam Steele, in the expansion draft, to me, it says they want to give him another shot. So they're still believing that that could be a part of the pipeline they establish long-term. So I'm thinking now they need some more finishers, especially with guys like Jakob Silverberg, who have sort of hit their peak. And, you know, Silverberg is an example of a guy who's sort of just turned into more of a two-way player. You have Ricard Raquel, who's, I think he's got one year left on his deal now. So he's probably not going to be a duck at the end of this. He's, he came up with so many trade rumors this past season. So I think you have to start looking long-term at your scoring line wingers. So that's why I have Dylan Gunther. Let's go with number four, the New Jersey Devils. Is this one obvious? Are we going to take the obvious one here? I'm not going to take the obvious one here. Uh, I'll leave that for you to, to explore, but I'm actually going to go with Dylan Gunther in this situation uh, because I look at the Devils and Again, you look down the middle, they've got Nico Heischer, they've got Jack Hughes, they've got their scoring centers for the next decade. It's all good there. You know, on defense, they got Ty Smith. And I just think at this point in the draft, you know, um, you go with kind of best player available. And I feel with Gunther, you are getting a guy with a ton of scoring potential. Uh, Just lit up the WHL this season. You know, he put up a ton of points in a very short amount of time. And he's got good size, moves well. I think for a Devils team that really needs goal scoring in their lineup in the future, he's a great fit. You got him, you got Alex Holtz coming up. All of a sudden, you're starting to see things come together in New Jersey, and it's going to take a little longer, but I think he'd be a great piece for them. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to take that big obvious bait and go Luke Hughes, bring the Hughes brothers together. I think with the Devils, if you look at their forward group, so of course we have Alex Holtz already in the system. Nuko Hiche, who I think is going to be a lot better this year. He had a really unlucky season with the sinus problem. Jack Hughes, I think as well, his underlying metrics drastically improved. So there's sort of a bubbling breakout. And the, the young support staff, support staff is a funny way to put it, but the supporting wingers and score, scorers, or at least you know the forward core for the Devils, I think they showed a lot of promise. Igor, Igor Sharangovich and Mikey McLeod finally found his way as a penalty killer type. Nathan Bastion, who I have been claimed by Seattle in the expansion draft, really found his physical game. So I think you saw some nice gains from the young forwards already on the team. And to me, that, that gives Tom Fitzgerald the ability to lean toward defensemen, go with that talent, 
you have two hues in the system and you can sort of build around the brothers. And there's, there's a cool question from a, from a listener that's going to address that later. We'll get back to that as well. So number five, Ryan, the Columbus Blue Jackets, who do you have for them? Well, uh, again, I'm going to split this one based on the fact that Seattle could go one of two ways. I think Columbus has to go with a center in this, uh, in this slot. If Maddie Beneers is available, then you take Maddie Beneers. If he's already off the board, then I think they probably go with Mason McTavish. Uh, was supposed to play for the Peterborough Pete's again this year in the OHL, but there was no OHL season. So he went over to Switzerland, played for EHC Olton, playing against men in a pro league. Did very well. He's an aggressive player. He's got pretty good size. And he's one of the best goal scorers in this draft class. Certainly one of the most talented players in that OHL pool. So for Columbus, you look at this player and say, hey, we are going to need help down the middle. You know, I, I know GM Yarmo Kekalainen has placed a lot of faith in guys like Alexander Tessier, uh, but I just don't think they have the high-end depth that they need. They don't, they don't really have any high-end options for that matter. I think Tessier is more of a second or third liner, you know, at the end of the day. Mason McTavish can be a first-line center and I think that he would be a really good fit for Columbus as they try to find that next generation to propel them forward. Cool. And, and it's a good point you mentioned about the Blue Jackets center depth. It, it was sort of the problem with the Pierre-Luc Dubois trade in the first place. And it wasn't a deep position for them. It was a position at which they were trying to get stronger. That's why they acquired Max Domi. Didn't work out. But you know the principle of what they were trying to do, but then you trade Pierre-Luc Dubois away, with all due respect to Jack Rosselvick, you weakened yourself with the position. So I do have... You know, like you said, Ryan, if Matty Beneers is there, I have him going to Columbus. But in my own scenario, see, the further we go down the list, our permutations, kind of like the multiverse timelines in Loki, for Loki viewers out there, they start to split and go off in different directions. And in my multiverse, my my separate timeline, I have Matty Beneers, <laughs> Stevens booing. I, I have Matty Beneers going to Seattle. So I have Simon Edmondson dropping to number five. And I have Columbus taking him because I think Columbus is going to trade Seth Jones. So they're going to have to start replacing the defense pipeline. So that's why I have him going with best available, who is a defenseman in this case. So that's our mini mock. We're not going to go through a full mock because Ryan's had a lot of great coverage leading up to the draft. You can find it online. He's got the entire first round and much more 120 picks mapped out. So let's move on a little bit and talk more about the draft class in general. And, you know, we've already mentioned the idea that Owen Power is not necessarily going right to the NHL. And it kind of highlights how unique this draft class is. And I've said this to anyone who asks me, it's a throwback draft class. It kind of reminds me of, you know, pre mid 1990s when you would see Chris Phillips go number one, but he's not in the NHL to the next year. And the game has changed so much that there's an expectation now. There's my family's dog barking. If you can hear that in the background, that's his name is Splash. Um, there's an expectation that players have to jump right to the pros now. It's just, I think, especially, I think you can really tie it in particular to when Crosby came out in, in the 05 draft and that sort of started the era. But we're looking at the fact that these kids are not necessarily going right to the NHL. And my main, my roundabout way of getting to this question, Ryan, what I'm trying to ask you is, is this indeed a weaker draft class than we've had in recent years? Is it one of the weaker draft classes in recent memory or is it just different? I think on the face of things, it's a bit weaker than we've been used to in the past sort of decade. Um, having said that, and I know we'll get into this a bit later, you know, because there were so few viewings and so few games this year, it's really hard to get a beat on some of the kids that may have been high risers in the past or may have, you know, put themselves on the map where we didn't expect so, you know, you know, ordinarily. 
the fact that we might not see any of these kids go straight to the NHL obviously says something. Uh, and, you know, you're totally right about uh, development. Uh, but, you know, we've seen guys like, you know, McDavid and Stamkos and Tavares and Austin Matthews and, you know, year after year, it's just kind of assumed that the top guy would always go straight to the NHL, probably the number two as well. And then, you know, there's one or two more kids in there and we're probably not going to get that this season, which overall is fine. But in turn, you know, it does say something about the draft class. And I, I think we'll need to give this one a little more time than the typical draft. But on paper, you know, like I'm I have to say, you know, next year is already looking more exciting with Shane Wright, Brad Lambert and Matt Savoy all at the top and some pretty great players after that. They'll all be in the top 10. Mm hmm. And I, I do think that just colloquially, when people talk about, you know, the idea of good or bad draft classes, really, people are referring to the first round, like the sexy part of the draft, right? So in this case, is the first round as exciting as recent years or, or years that are upcoming? I don't think so. So I'm with you on that one. Um, but I want to transition to the next thing I wanted to talk about. And that is, you know, do we think it's possible that this draft, even though it's going to be less exciting at the top, is going to yield some interesting steals? And the reason why I ask that is, because of the fact that there was COVID, it's made this year very strange. It was much harder to scout kids. We had no OHL season. We had no WHL playoffs. The QM, QMJHL was all over the map. The Euro Leagues got much closer to proper seasons in, so there's an imbalance there. So based on that, are you are you foreseeing, you know, some of the, the have teams actually beating the have-nots? So you could be a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning who just sits back and picks way later than everybody else, and you say, oh, well, our scouting will find a gem in this draft because all the tape – there's, there's, you know, just all the scouting data in general is kind of all over the map because of COVID this year. Very much so. And, you know, when I talk to NHL scouts on the phone about players, I'll bring a name up and they'll jokingly say like, oh, no, he's terrible. I don't want anybody to know about him because we want to take him in the third round. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that does happen every year, but I think this year in particular, you're going to see savvy teams that maybe they jump on a kid a little bit earlier than anticipated, uh, or they'll they'll grab a kid that maybe some of the teams didn't get to see or, or hadn't heard of. Um, you know, there's there's going to be some goaltenders out there, uh, particularly from Russia, that I think some teams are going to key in on as their their nice little sleepers. Uh, there's certainly a lot of players from the OHL who, you know, either didn't play at all or only played say at the World Under 18s, like a Wyatt Johnston, who. You know, if you followed him long enough, you say, okay, well, he's come pretty far already and it's a small sample size. But if you believe in him, then you say to yourself, okay, well, this could be somebody special. And uh, yeah, I definitely think we're going to see picks all over the map. I think if you ask one team about what another team did, they'll say like their second rounder, we didn't even have him on our board. Uh, but then, you know, they got somebody in the seventh that we would have taken in the third round. So it's, it's going to be fascinating and it's going to be, it's going to be hard to judge teams on this draft right away, because I think we're going to have to wait a couple of years to see how it all actually shakes out in practical terms. Yeah, I think you're hundred percent right. And I actually wrote a story about this, just how it's going to be the hardest draft class for scouts in so many years. Uh, it appeared in our draft preview issue and I can sort of share some of the findings I got. For, I talked to agents and scouts, directors of amateur scouting, and I got a whole bunch of reasons why this year is so strange. So if I sort of summarize some of the ones that stood out, one of them is the fact that defensemen in particular are really hard to scout this year. And it was the assistant GM of an NHL team that explained this to me because 
you're forced to rely so much more on video because you can't travel as much. So you're watching a lot of video instead of live. And when you're watching video, you have to follow where the camera is following the play. You miss a lot of the stuff that happens behind the play. And that's where a lot of defensemen do their most important work. Whereas forwards, are, you know, they tend to be closer to where the puck is. So you lose a lot of nuance in, in what you're seeing in defensemen's game. That's one thing that I think is, is tougher to evaluate this year uh, based on what I'm being told. Um, there's a few others. One is the fact that, you know, scouts are relying a lot more on their that the area scout the local scouts really excited about it's really just okay i can't come to you i'm not allowed to fly this year so you've got to tell me what you think about this kid so you're going to see a lot more i think potential variants and picks an agent told me he thinks there's going to be a lot more uh like yugor chinikov picks crazy picks that have everyone scrambling whereas a, a player that's way off the board like you said ryan as well you're going to see those crazy variations and the other thing that struck me is something that ron francis said um, when he was first interviewed after he, it was one of his first media availabilities. And, and he explained that, you know, he changed so much between 17 and 18 years old physically and the lack of a combine, you're, we're missing the ability to evaluate certain kids. So there's one director of amateur scouting who said, you're not necessarily going to miss at the top of the draft and, and see busts, but you're going to see steals on the positive side later in the draft, because it's going to be kids that made big physical sort of leaps forward in their development, but it wasn't properly captured and there was just less opportunity to study them. The reason why I don't think you're going to see as many problems at the top of the draft is that the, the kids that did still get a lot of opportunities to be evaluated are the higher end prospects because they got to go to the tournaments, the under 18s, the world juniors, the separate showcases. But on the other hand, the kids that are slipping through the cracks, um, and I sort of floated the theory to a bunch of these scouts, are we going to see a lot of Tanner Pearson's guys that get passed over and they get picked next year as overagers? And they said, absolutely, because those are the kids that didn't get those invites to those big tournaments and didn't get as many chances to prove themselves, especially, of course, when it comes to kids in the OHL, some of whom didn't get to play at all this year, which is just crazy to think about. So I 100% uh, support the idea. It's going to be a very strange draft. And to me, it's a brutal draft if you're one of the bad teams because I don't think you're going to get rewarded as much this year. And the teams that traded away their picks, they're picking in the, in the mid to late rounds. If, they, if you have good development, like I'm looking at the Tampa Bay Lightning. I, I mentioned them already, but the Lightning are, to me are going to be a team that like, dum -dum -dum, like in the middle rounds, they stumble into a first round talent because of the fact that this kid slipped when he wouldn't have in a normal year. Next up for you, Mr. Kennedy. Let's talk steals. And when I say steals... I, if you want to get technical better, obviously it's not going to be in round one. If you want to pick a projected second round or go ahead, but you can go deeper if you want. But just give me your sleeper pick, your steal of the draft, any any round after round two. I subtly recommend you know going deeper if you can, but uh, who do you have as your steal? All right. Well, if we want to go past the second round, then I'm not going to say Jack Peart, who's one of my favorite players, because in draft preview we had him 63rd overall, and that's still a second rounder thanks to Seattle coming to the league. Uh, so instead, I'll go with Vinny Iorio from the Brandon Wheat Kings. Uh, this is a player that I think we had in the third round in draft preview. And I can actually look it up right here because I have draft preview. But, you know, Vincent Iorio played for the Brandon Wheat Kings uh, this season. Will continue to play for the Wheat Kings, I should say. And he's a guy with a lot of potential. He had to do, you know, quite a bit on that Brandon uh, blue line. Uh, showed a lot defensively, and that's what scouts liked about him. Uh, but he also does have some offensive upside to his game, and that's the type of player where, you know, he had that shortened WHL season, but scouts did have a chance to, to see quite a bit of him. Um, that's the type of player where 
you can see a lot of growth is, is still going to come and, and he has quite the ceiling. So I think Yorio is one to watch because, you know, we had him in the draft. Um, I'm just trying to find the number here. Uh, you know, we had him sort of in the mid there. We had number 67. Uh, but if a team jumped up and took him a little earlier than that, I would not be surprised. All right. Nice one. So my pick, I've seen this kid ranked anywhere from 75th. So that would be, you know, early third round to 275th, which would be, what is that? Almost that, that would be not even drafted. Right. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head where he is in our, in our magazine. So I'm very curious, but I have, he's a big mobile defenseman from the Sarnia staying Ryan Mast. And the reason why I have him as my sleeper is the tools are there. From what I understand, he's got a big shot. He's got great natural skating ability, kind of a raw kid. But the tools, like it's almost like a Jacob Chikrin type of skill set there, but didn't play this year. And my understanding, I don't think he played, like when I was sort of just looking more into him, I, I don't think he played at all in terms of any organized league play this year. So to me, that puts him under the radar. And yes, he has to hone his you know decision-making uh, and puck management, but if those are your biggest problems and you have the raw tools, I think there's a player that could become something special if the right team picks him up and starts to mold him. So I'm curious, do you, if you have the draft preview open, where, where's Ryan Mast and is he in, did he make the top 100? He did not make the top 100. So okay. that's a very good sleeper pick. We'll, okay. we'll see what happens there. Cause you're right. I mean, with, with no OHL season guys like that, you know, I mean, if he was at the Erie showcase, then scouts would have seen him in sort of a semi-formal uh, show, you know, developmental showcase. Uh, but otherwise, they're going to have to rely on what he did as a sort of 16, 17-year-old. And it's very difficult to project. But if you like what you saw then, then you say he might be worth a mid-round pick and let's see where, what happens. Boom. And Jacob Chikrin, he played for Sarnia, did he not? He certainly does. There's the connection. See, it all comes together in my head. All right. Okay. Uh, next up for you, Ryan. Name a player that you believe will be traded either just in the days leading up to this draft or during the draft is also allowed. Who do you have? I'm going to go with Jack Eichel. You know, this is going to be a big week for the Sabres. They've got that number one pick. I, there's talk that they're really hot on William Eklund and, and might try to get a, a, another Top five, top 10 pick. I think you definitely need a top five pick if you want to have Willie Mecklin. But I wonder, you know, because of that, maybe that pick comes via a trade package for Jack Eichel. And it's certainly going to take more than that. But, you know, we know the Sabres have to figure out something. And I feel they have to do it sooner than later. They got to get all their ducks in a row. They got to figure out Eichel. They got to figure out Sam Reinhardt. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, they got to figure out their relationship with Rasmus Ristolainen. Uh, so I'm going to go with uh, Eichel and the Sabres. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a good pick. I'm going to go with Seth Jones. I already mentioned it earlier in the podcast. Uh, to me, the, the Blue Jackets, especially in the talk since John Davidson came back on board, is, the, is that I think the Blue Jackets are understanding that they have to take a step back now if they want to go forwards. They have to do a proper rebuild now. I think, you know, it's crumbled. Everything around them has crumbled this year. It was a pretty disastrous season. They're in a pretty exciting position because they have the number five pick, but they also have two other picks in the first round. So you can do a lot with that. You can either take those picks, package both of them to move up and pick another player higher in the draft. If you trade Seth Jones, which they originally were reported to be doing before the draft, I don't know whether you get another pick or you include Seth Jones and one and your later, your sort of your pick at the end of the first round, which I believe is Tampa Bay's, and you get 
a first round, higher first rounder back and a top end prospect. And the idea I have in mind is, you know, Chicago, Seth Jones, and maybe the 31st pick, and you get Adam Bokefist from Chicago, and you get the Blackhawks pick, which is the 12th overall pick, and maybe Chicago has to kick in another piece, Alex Nylander or something like that. But, of course, Seth Jones is already rumored to be high on Chicago's list. They get Caleb Jones. The rumor mill just swirls even more. But that's the kind of thing I have in mind, and I think Columbus, they could really make waves. And and we saw it with the New York Rangers. You know, They had a, a, a phase where they picked a whole bunch of times in a short amount of time, and they quickly kind of rebuilt their structure, and they, they tended to have a proper prospect base upon which to build, help them attract Artemi Panarin as a free agent. So I do think Columbus can reload. They're in a unique position, and I am still predicting that Seth Jones gets traded, although reportedly the offers have not been good enough. So the onus, it's not like his immediate onus. They don't have to do it at the draft. I just think it's easier. It's more likely to happen on draft day or around draft day. So that's my pick. So, Ryan, I know you had an update uh, on the situation with Logan Mayu, who uh, renounced his draft status. He was part of a scandal in which he was convicted for distributing, uh, I believe, sexually explicit photos of someone, a sexual partner without her consent. And after that conviction, which I believe happened last year, he's now removed himself from the draft process, asked people not to draft him. So that's sort of what I know. I, I know more of the surface story, but, but is there anything else you can share on what the latest is? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit on most of the major points uh, there. It happened when he was playing in Sweden because Again, there was no OHL season. He would have been with the London Knights. Uh, this was a player that, you know, a, a lot of scouts were, were very intrigued by in terms of his on-ice potential. Uh, very raw, but, you know, a big kid that uh, actually played uh, Junior B for the most part last season, only got in a couple of games of the Knights. But, you know, he, he officially said, like, hey, like, I have more maturing to do. Don't pick me. Uh, obviously getting ahead of the news here. And we all remember what happened last year with Mitch Miller, where Arizona ended up renouncing him as a draft pick when the scandal around his past came out. So for Mayu, this is an opportunity to uh, obviously do some, some personal growing. Um, you know, there, there are reports that the, the victim does not believe that uh, he has sufficiently apologized to her. And, you know, that's obviously something ongoing. You, you want to make sure that, that the victim, uh, you know, feels that they are in a, a better place uh, before you, you move on from this whole story. Um, but, you know, Mayu, uh, you know, he has the support of the London Knights. And uh, we just have to see what happens next season. And, you know, uh, again, if you're talking on ice, then he was a very intriguing prospect that was probably an early second rounder. Uh, now, we have to assume that team, there was a lot of teams that were, had already taken him off their draft board entirely because of this scandal. Um, but what happens next year? That's going to be the interesting question. Yeah. And, and you know, I have to admit, I, I have some problems with the timing and structure of his statement. Uh, especially if you read the last sentence of it. So I'll just read the last sentence. I feel this would allow me the opportunity to demonstrate an adequate level of maturity and character next season with the London Knights in the OHL and provide all the NHL teams the opportunity to reassess my character towards the 2022 NHL draft. And the mention of the 2022 draft in the statement makes me question the motivation here. You know that you're fall you've fallen significantly in the draft. If you get picked, you're going to be getting taken in a late round and there is now motivation to convince teams to not pick you, not just because you feel truly sorry, but also because you know you're losing money if you get picked later. 
And to me, I think that's a big problem. I think including that in this statement, I don't think it was a very good move integrity wise, because to me, what I see when I see this is, oh, you want to get picked next year when your draft stock comes back up, you can get a better contract. So I don't know. I, I, I'm obviously removed from the situation and I can't get inside his head, but I think whether he was advised this from an agent, I just think it was unwise to specifically kind of just explicitly say, hey, next year, thumbs up. Can you take me next year? Do you mind taking me next year? Because to me, it's just, it's pretty cut and dry. And of course you want to get picked next year. So I don't know. I, I'm, it just, it makes me icky. That's my, my conspiracy theory. Let's do some listener mailbag questions now. We've got one from Adam Flett. Adam Flett wants to know, what does Mason McTavish offer that Chaz, Chaz, I almost said Chad, Chad Lucius doesn't. I've seen McTavish linked to the Detroit Red Wings, but not Chaz, and I cannot separate them. What am I missing? So Ryan, you're going to be able to explain it better than I can because you've studied these guys a lot more. But my sort of closer to a layperson's uh, understanding is that McTavish is more of a puck protector, more of a passer, someone who can make teammates around him better. And I know I've, I've read before that Lucius is compared to Steven Stamkos with his heavy shot, but I think McTavish is more the type of guy that's going to be someone you can build around because of his effect on teammates. And I know that Lucius also had a knee issue that slowed him down this year too. So maybe from a health perspective, there's risk there, but obviously Ryan, you can, you can explain this better than I can. Yeah, you know, they're not they're not too off when they when it comes to their games. You know, Mason McTavish is definitely the more aggressive player, and he's a very good goal scorer. Um, Chaz Lucius is a fantastic goal scorer. I would say he's probably the best goal scorer in the draft class. Um, not necessarily as you know burly and physical as McTavish. You're getting more of a guy that is he's got a nose for the net. He knows where to go. He's really good when it comes to figuring out when to use his shot and, and where to use it. Now, the funny thing about Lucius is he started the season on the shelf because of a knee injury. And, you know, his skating was seen as fine, but not great before the knee injury. When he came back, his skating was actually much improved. You would think that it would be the opposite, but scouts were pleasantly surprised Lucius was moving better than he ever had before. So obviously that surgery went very well for him. Um, I, I think what you're, you know, the, the big difference is just the aggressiveness that McTavish has and the fact that, you know, he's the kind of guy you follow on the ice. You know, um, he's the kind of guy where almost like in the same way Brady Kachuk is for Ottawa, where it's like, you know, that Mason McTavish is going to go full tilt the whole game. So if you're not, then you're not going to keep up with him. Um, and teams want guys like McTavish because they want to pull others into the fight. So I would say that's the big difference. Um, Lucius, he's, you know, he's the guy that he could easily, you know, get 40, maybe even 50 goals in the NHL if he becomes what we hope he will become. And he's headed to the University of Minnesota, which is obviously a, a pretty nice program to develop in. His, his name, he sounds like the villain in a Mighty Ducks sequel. Well, here's here's the great thing. He has a younger brother who also plays for the NTDP named Cruz Lucius. C-R-U-Z. Uh, they actually played on the same line together at Gentry Academy. Cruz was the playmaker. Chaz was the trigger man. Ew. Cobra Kai villains. Maybe that's even, even better comparison. Uh, next question is from Stefan. Stefan wants to know, do you think we will see 
see three Swedes in the top 10. So we already talked about Evanson and Eklund, the other being, of course, Jesper Wallstedt. That's the question he wants to know. I'm going to say yes. If you look at the trend in recent drafts, you know, for, for a good 10, 15 years, we were trending away from goalies being picked high. All of a sudden, we're re-entering a mega prospect goalie era where you have Spencer Knight and Yaroslav Askarov going high in the draft. I think that Wallstedt, that's somebody that the Ottawa Senators are going to have their crosshairs on because they've done a really great job building up their pipeline and, you know, you address forward and defense with, I think it was the three and the number three and number five pick, right? With Stutzla and Sanderson last year. And it was a three and five. It was three and five, wasn't it? Yeah. Three and five. Sounds right to me. Yeah. Cause Byfield was number two. Yes. Okay. So you make those picks and the one thing that's been blatantly missing, it's come up time and again in Ottawa's pipeline is that franchise goaltender. So my understanding is that he's worth it. So I have him going number 10 to the Ottawa senators. That's my long way of saying yes. I predict we will see three Swedes in the top 10. What do you think, Ryan? I could not agree more. I have the exact same thought. Jesper Wallstead is the perfect selection for Ottawa. I suppose if they prefer Sebastian Kosa from the Edmonton Oil Kings, they could go that way. But if I'm just going chalk, um, Wallstead's your guy. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the Sens are loaded up front and they're loaded on the back end because you've got Sanderson, you've got Jacob Bernard Docker, you've got Tyler Clevin coming up. Um, you know, you still have Eric Bronstrom finding his way. And then up front, you know, on top of Stutzla and Brady Kachuk and Batherson, you got Shane Pinto, uh, and, you know, Josh Norris is already there. It's kind of an embarrassment of riches, but they do need that goalie of the future. I don't think they've settled on it yet. And, you know, looking at Spencer Knight, I think we're seeing a template where, yeah, maybe you draft uh, an elite goalie, and that elite goalie only needs two, maybe three years to hit the NHL. And I think Wallstead is certainly in that category. Yeah, and it's funny. If you look at the starting goalies in the final four in the Stanley Cup playoffs this year, Marc-Andre Fleury, Semyon Varlamov, Andre Vasilevsky, Carey Price, all first-round picks. So there you, go. you never know. Sometimes you do hit. It's still hard, but sometimes you do. Next question is from Josh the Zamboni guy. Which team is going to reach and make everyone confused? I think we're going to see a sequel of the Columbus Blue Jackets last year. Of course, they really stumped everybody with the Chinikov pick. And to me, the reason why I see it happening again is because they have the three first-round picks. So when you have that many, you can you can use one or two picks on safe, but then you can also use one on just getting your guy. You have that luxury. Just say, hey, I can, you know, we have this early pick. We can make sure we get this guy that our scouts like, even if maybe he's going to be available the next round. We're just going to go for it. So I have Columbus as a team most likely to do it. Yeah, I think Columbus is a great one. I love Yarmo Kegelainen and Billy Siren, uh, is his uh, head of scouting, uh, because they have a vision and they go with it. Uh, it's just fun seeing what they come up with and, and whether it'll work out. Two other teams I'm going to make note of. One is Seattle, because we don't know what that scouting staff is like yet that they, they don't have a track record because this is their first draft. It'll be interesting to see what Robert Cron values and, and what kind of execution they get there. Now, obviously with the second overall pick, it's not going to be wild, but from then on, you know, I suspect we're going to see Seattle pick up a couple of draft selections inside deals vis-a-vis uh, -vis the expansion draft. So I'm sure they'll have either another first rounder or a couple of second rounders to play with. The other team is the Buffalo Sabres. You know, this is a franchise that obviously had a ton of churn in their front office. Uh, they have a very small scouting staff right now, but they also made a change during the season 
where their new director of amateur scouting, Jeremiah Crow, got moved over to the pro side, and Jerry Fortin uh, went to become the director of amateur scouting. So I'm wondering what that means for the overall picture. And I'm sure everybody's going to work together in Buffalo, and everybody has been doing video. Um, but I'm, I'm very curious what sort of impact that new look front office has on the Sabres draft class. Because, again, it's going to be a key year for them to continue that rebuild, and they'll probably have even more extra picks um, to play with because, you know, we're expecting there's probably going to be some trades from them. Interesting. Okay. Last question comes from Ranton Raven. Ranton Raven wants to know, what are the positives and negatives of drafting brothers uh, onto the same team? This is assuming that the New Jersey Devils take Luke Hughes. It's interesting to me, when you look at the positives of siblings, it, it really, if you're, if you're talking on ice, it's it's when they're actual line mates. So of course, like Dan, Daniel and Henrik Sedin are the all-time example of brotherly chemistry. But if they're playing different positions, I, I think it's kind of overrated and I don't think it actually affects the on-ice game that much. So that would be the case in the, when you're referring to Luke and Jack Hughes. And, you know, it helps in the sense uh, if from a business-wise, it, it's good marketing. You have the brothers, sure. So in terms of bottom line and jersey sales, sure, that's fine. Um, the older brother can obviously help the younger brother learn quicker to be a pro because you just have that established personal relationship. On the other hand, I do wonder if you have a brother tandem on a team, if they're just naturally going to be drawn to each other and become less ingratiated with the rest of the team because they always have each other to lean on. So could that have the opposite effect? To me, that's the potential downside. Yeah, I think you make a lot of good points there. I think when it comes to the NHL lifestyle, um, obviously it's a positive to have a brother who's already on the team in that system. You know, he can help the younger brother just figure out you know, what they have to do in terms of sleep, nutrition, you know, just getting to the rink, being a pro, being prepared. On the other hand, you know, sometimes it's good to just be out on your own for the first time in your life and, and really grow up quickly. And you have to do that at, at the NHL level. And if you have an older brother who's already there, they can kind of hold your hand a little more uh, than, you know, other players in that situation. And maybe it takes you a little bit longer to get to that level because you've always got somebody there that's kind of a safety blanket. Uh, on a whole, I think it's a positive. And, uh, you know, if New Jersey doesn't take Luke Hughes, maybe Vancouver moves up and you get two of the Hughes boys on the back end. How exciting would that be mm. uh, for Canucks fans? Uh, but who knows? Yeah, that'd be pretty interesting. Hmm, hmm. Could be onto something there. Okay. Mm. All right. We're going to finish this podcast with the rapid fire game. Of course, I am your host this time. Are you ready, Ryan? I am ready as always. Okay. And Steven, I'm giving you the opportunity to participate because you're a big draft guy. It's a special podcast for you. So if you want to, if you want to get in on this, you're welcome. I'm in, I'm in. Okay. So Ryan, you answer first, Steven, you answer second. Question one, the NHL's 33rd team is dropping the puck on its inaugural game. What year is it? Oh, that's just it, not who this team is? Okay, um, I think that year is going to be 2030. I'm going to go 2034. Okay, I also had 2030. I think I think the NHL is going to let things sit for a bit now. You have a nice symmetry, eight teams per division, so I don't think you're going to rock the boat for a little while. Okay, 
Which is the most overrated fast food chain? Overrated McDonald's. Yeah, yeah I, I only go there if I'm uh, like in a country where I don't know all the, the restaurants very well. And at least then I know what I'm getting with McNuggets and fries. But otherwise, I go with my Popeyes and whatever high-end, you know, Shake Shack slash In-N-Out type uh, Five Guys Burger places. Yeah, I'm going to McDonald's. I used to work there. It was a nightmare. And I know a lot of people that will say like, oh, they're drunk. Let's go to McDonald's. Like of all places, like you have to be extremely drunk to want a warrant going to McDonald's. I guess I got to stand up for, for my boy, McDonald's here. I think <laughs> McDonald's is so overrated that it's underrated now. My, my overrated pick is Chipotle. Pretty pricey. It, I, you know, I could name several burritos that are better than what they offer off the top of my head. That's a shot at, at our art director, Shea Branchy, as well, because he's all about the Chipotle. Honorable mention to Hero Burger. Totally bland, in my opinion. Okay, Ryan, you are casting a remake of Slapshot. So you have to recast the Paul Newman role. Who do you pick? Ooh, you know what? Maybe it's just because I watched the trailer uh, for the, his new movie, but how about Johnny Knoxville? He's that age now. You know he'd do the he'd, he'd do all the uh, the physicality himself. I'm not sure if he can skate or not, but uh, that would be fun. Or if I'm trying to go a little more, uh, you know, mainstream Hollywood, Matthew McConaughey. He's grizzled. I'm going Vin Diesel. I want to see something just hilariously out of place and stupid. I think you're just like, could you imagine him actually like body checking somebody? That'd be a great sight. Oh man. That's pretty good. I mean, if you're going to go there, you may as well just keep it going and go with The Rock. But uh, I did have Matthew McConaughey as my number two pick because I think he has the right type of charm of Paul Newman, but I don't know if he can lose the Southern twang. It would be weird to have a, a slap shot movie with a Southern accent yeah. in your star. So I'm going to go the other way in terms of accent, Matt Damon, because you know Paul Newman was, was getting older. So I think age-wise, uh, Matt Damon's roughly the same age as Paul Newman was when he made Slapshot. And mm. of course, you just get Matt Damon to dial up his Boston accent again. He feels like a hockey player. And I think he fits right in. And he's got, I think, the physicality. He can get himself into the right shape. And I think he's got sort of an athlete, I don't know, sort of aura about him when you see him in the board movies as well. So that's my that's my guy for Slapshot Remake. Okay. Uh, another movie question, but not a hockey movie question. What is the scariest, not best, but scariest actual zombie movie or show? Oh, okay. Actual scariest. I'm going to go with, you know what? I want to say Kingdom, but I don't know if that's scariest, but it is the best. So that's kind of the opposite of what we're going for. I would say like one of the, like, you know what? The Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead, uh, the one with Sarah Polly, that was pretty good. That had some really good gore in it. So that, that one leaps to mind to me. And obviously like the first, season of walking dead as well yeah i'm gonna go with there was one movie i saw so many years ago i can't remember if it's actually called train to basan but that was a movie that was that was terrifying but the one zombie thing i'll always remember was back when i was getting really into marvel stuff someone made like a really actual scary like fan-made marvel zombies like fan-made trailer for youtube of like spider-man going around eating people and it's it's like it's still pictured in my mind it was pretty scary 
Train to Busan, absolute classic in the in the genre as well. I'm going to say 28 Days Later just because it, it really popularized the the really fast zombie. And Danny Boyle deliberately cast really good athletes to play the zombies. So you could get the, the crazy sprinting and jumping of the zombies. And the virus in that movie spread so fast that you're turned into a zombie just with a drop of blood as opposed to being bitten. Like if one drop of blood goes in, on your tongue or in your eye or whatever, you turn to a zombie in like 10 seconds. So it's the yeah. potency of that pandemic. And maybe the fact that it rings a little too true in the COVID era, I think just made it all the more scary. So to me, that's the scariest zombie movie ever made. Uh, okay. The all-time draft class podium, I think everybody would agree, 1979 and 2003 are on the podium. You have one more draft class you can put on that podium. This is a tough question to think about, so I'm going to answer it first to give you guys time, okay? I'm going to say the 2015 is my other draft class on the podium because even though it's only six years removed, you have Connor McDavid, Jack Eichel, Mitch Marner, Mikko Rantanen, Ivan Provorov, Zach Wierenski, Kyle Connor, Brock Besser, Sebastian Aho, Matt Marzal, Thomas Shabbat, Anthony Sorelli, Rupe Hintz, Ilya Samsonov. Unbelievable. And there are other names I didn't even mention there. I'm turning red because it took me that long to get that, get that all out. Um, but to me, it's shaping up as an all-time great draft class. So I bought you guys time. You're up, Brian. All right. Um, I'm going to go with 2016 because um, you got Austin Matthews at the top, then Patrick Lyonne, who, you know, he's going through something right now. But as you've pointed out numerous times, Matt, he scored a ton of goals for a guy his age. Uh, you got Matthew Kachuk in there, Mikhail Sergachev, Charlie McAvoy went 14th overall. And I know I was talking to somebody that worked for uh, – an independent analytics company a few years ago. And I was like, oh, so how does that affect draft rankings? Like when you guys do your things, and he's like, well, Charlie McAvoy would have gone a lot higher if people listen to us. Um, so, you know, looking at that high end right there, that's a pretty solid one. And uh, and then you even get into like Jordan Kiru uh, was a second rounder. Alex Dabrinkit went 39th. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll go 16. That was a pretty good draft. I'm going to go bold and say the 2023 draft, but if we're going to go for actual drafts that have happened, I'd say 1983, because that was the year that had like Geiserman, LaFontaine, Neely, Hashik. So that was a pretty good year. Okay. Last question. On a scale of one to 10, how much do you care about the rich white guy race to the moon between Richard Branson and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos? Uh, on a scale of one to 10, I will say... One, because they didn't even really go to space. They just went into like high orbit. And I think that's like, that's weak sauce, man. You go to space, you're down. See, you go, it's like, it's, a, it's an asterisk. It's the Mark McGuire of uh, interstellar travel. Oh, I, it's funny. I, I wasn't following any of that until this morning, but I'd say <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm definitely pretty, pretty low, but. If, if I had all this money in the world, I don't know if space is where I'd want to go. But explore the ocean more. Yeah, like go swimming, right like there. in a really nice pool that, like, in a sub that will never explode. So you could just spend all day there. Like, that sounds more fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's where all the, um, all the undiscovered actual life is. So exactly. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Got to be, be more like James Cameron. I, I, I'm going to say 1.5 out of 10. The extra 0.5 is just. If they make some kind of breakthrough that actually eventually is, you know, used for proper space travel down the road, I guess there's a mild interest. But overall, 
it's extremely lame. So I'm mostly out on it. And we are now out on this podcast. Hope you enjoyed the draft preview edition. We're going to keep going with these special episodes. The next one after this is going to be a free agency preview. It's a packed off season. Big news breaks keep coming. So be ready for that one. Thank you for listening. And watching. Thank you for listening to the Hockey News Podcast. Make sure to check out THN.com slash subscribe to get issues of the Hockey News Magazine delivered right to your mailbox.